Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Republican Greta Joins moderates a conversation between Democrats Zach Fister and Nadim El Shami in our latest update on House politics. Nadim and Zach discuss the issues that, in these divisive times, have unified the Democratic caucus from California to the Rust Belt, and how the new generation of incoming House members will reshape the party for years to come. They address the rumblings of leadership changes aimed at Nancy Pelosi, and Greta weighs in on the leadership vacuum on the Republican side of the aisle. As downtowners evaluate the next congressional makeup, our team predicts who the dealmakers and the dealbreakers will be. Welcome back to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Greta Joins, a policy advisor here at Brownstein. I am joined today by Nadim Alshami and Zach Fister. Nadim is the newest addition to Brownstein, making his podcast debut. He is the former chief of staff to Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi. Also with us is Zach Fister. Um, Zach has extensive experience in Democratic politics and most recently served as uh, Larry Kissel's uh, legislative director, who is a Democrat from North Carolina. Well, today we're talking about the House midterm elections, which everyone is talking about. Um, There is talk of a blue wave, which I'm not necessarily buying into, but we'll get to that later. Despite those predictions, I want to delve into what you both think may be the winning messages from the Democrats and Republicans and how that will lead to actually governing in their legislative agendas. Thank you so much. The Democratic message going forward is about how they can provide a balance to the Trump administration over the next two years. The Democratic closing arguments over the next few weeks is going to be about prescription drugs, jobs, and reform in Washington. It's a strong message that balances against the Trump administration. They strongly feel that this message resonates with voters, not just in Democratic districts, but in Republican districts and with suburban voters as well. Zach, is that the same type of conversations you're having with your contacts on the Hill as well? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, if you look at it from the context of the fact that the Democrats have been out of power for eight years, um, they have a lot of plans. And uh, they have learned from previous cycles that if they're not prepared to take the majority, uh, then they will um, have a muddled message and they will uh, enter in with uh, kind of a scattershot approach. And this time, you know, since they you know were in the majority, uh, they won the majority in 2006, picked up extra seats in 2008. Um, they have uh, recent experience, but I think the Republicans were much more prepared in 2010 uh, during the last wave election for what was ahead. Uh, I think the Democrats are taking a page from that playbook. They have uh, made according a arrangements uh, in prep with their committee hiring. Uh, their staffs are going to increase. Uh, they've been pretty clear about their agenda for, for the last you know, 12, 18 months. Uh, as Nadim said, that they'll be off the right out the gate with a few um, right off the bat. But more broadly speaking, I think... Um, when you dive down into some of the deeper policy issues, they're going to want to tackle uh, immigration. They're going to want to tackle drug prices. They'll want to tackle, um, you know, everything related to the recently passed tax cuts bill. 
Uh, they may seek to roll back certain areas in that legislation to help pay for uh, their own initiatives. So I think that when you look at each committee of jurisdiction, they're putting out their game plan. They'll defer to leadership, but at the same time, I think the the committees will have a significant influence next Congress, and uh, we'll see how the chips fall. I think part of that depends on how many seats they pick up and if they win the majority, but if they have a single-digit majority, maybe that's uh, more of a challenge for them than if they have a 20-seat majority. But as a caucus as a whole, they are more in line than ever on uh, the vast majority of the policies for which the party stands. And in in terms of those policies, I mean, Democrats are trying to win seats all over the country, and progressive politics in California are very different than they are in rural Pennsylvania. So how are the Democrats going to kind of coalesce behind a message and policies you know, assuming they win the majority in January, which, again, as Republicans, still don't believe that. But how do you reconcile these types of progressives in these very liberal states with kind of where where you need to go to win Trump voters back? Right. Well, I, so from the perspective of the, you know, the blue-collar uh, Rust Belt wing of the party, and I'll let Nadim kind of speak on the, on the West Coast uh, uh, challengers, I think what you have here is a return to the Democratic Party's historical base of support. Um, it has long been a, a big tent party, a coalition of various groups. It's just that over the last several cycles, where they have been the weakest has been in those blue-collar areas um, that were once much more heavily dominated by membership in labor unions, which we've seen a decline uh, in recent years. They uh, they had constituents and, and voters who were much more in line on the economic message with the party, than, and they kind of looked past the social uh, messages of the party because a job is what puts food on the table. I, I think that now, today, which is much different than 2006, like I said, the parties on social issues is pretty uniform. I mean, virtually every Democrat supports marriage equality, is supports a woman's right to choose, um, supports immigration reform. So those issues have become more uniform and less divisive within the party. And the party has you know, rightly so, given additional focus to where their weak spots are with their historical voters. And I think that's why you're seeing Pennsylvania become a hotbed. Uh, you know, given the redistricting uh, after the gerrymandering case, it has sort of realigned some of these populations with uh, with more appropriate boundaries given, uh, given the past. And you're seeing the Connor Lambs uh, of the world kind of pick up those seats. And you could see anywhere from four to seven seats in Pennsylvania on a on a very good night. Now, how that jives in with what do we do about the West Coast Democrats that are also running in Republican districts? I think uh, those are historically Republican districts. And Greta, you've said this before, too, where in previous elections you've had Democrats running to take back districts that should be represented by Democrats, and now we have a situation where you're running Democrats in Republican districts that should 
traditionally be held by Republicans. Right. Um, I think the Orange County seats, the San Diego area seats are, are a pretty good example, and Dean can talk more about that. I think that's. I think that's right. I think if, if you're going to see the issues that are going to be resonating within the, D- the Democratic caucus, whether you're from the West Coast, whether you're from Pennsylvania, whether you're from Wisconsin or Florida, you know, that issue is going to be infrastructure is one, and there's an opportunity there to to coalesce behind a bill and perhaps even go and work with the administration with Republicans on the Senate side because don't forget Republicans on the Senate are going to be facing a tough map in 2020 and they're going to want some victories. So an issue like infrastructure, whether you're from California up and down the state, whether you're from Pennsylvania, whether you're from Wisconsin, you're going to be looking for that victory and that's an important jobs bill. Trade. Trade has always been a dominant issue within the Democratic Party. However, what they're seeing now is an administration that has that is not consulting with Congress. So there is an opportunity there as well. And that issue resonates whether you're in Pennsylvania, whether you're in California, whether you're progressive or whether you're a moderate, whether you're a new dem or a blue dog. And also healthcare. Healthcare originally was an issue that divided Democrats. But many of the Democrats who are running for re-election today doesn't matter what district they're from, have been supportive of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and they see it as a way to win re-election or to win a seat. You're going to see it also on perhaps the gun debate, but the gun debate has always been an issue that divides the Democratic caucus. However, there's a few items that would mostly be supportive by the caucus, and the challenge for the Democrats going forward, should they be lucky enough to win the majority, which I believe they will, they are going to win the majority, is how do you find the issues that are very important to the Democratic base and be able to put a bill on the floor that is going to pass and get 218. That is going to be the challenge for the leadership. And I, I would add to that, if you look at the potential makeup of the Democratic caucus, let's assume that they get that they win exactly 23 seats or 24 seats, whatever puts them exactly at 218. If they have 218 votes, they have at a minimum 46 freshman Democrats. And that is a very young green group of Democrats and 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 most of them will be from a different generation than the majority of the existing caucus there will be uh, there has long been this discussion about uh, kind of an age gap between the current leadership um, and these restless uh, third term uh, members of Congress who are all seemingly vying for various uh, limited leadership positions in the Congress now they're going to have an entire flank behind them on top of that a third of the Democratic caucus will be female, which will be a historic number. On top of that, you have at a minimum 42 to 50% of the caucus will be people of color. So the Democratic Party is well known for having its various groups under its big tent who all have various policy priorities. Threading that needle in a thin majority is going to be more challenging than ever. Um, I think some there are some schools of thought that think, and uh, I, I'm stealing this term from Nadim, but the 
the new classification of the uber progressives, the the the, the farthest left group that in some ways is growing and, and, and pushing people like Nancy Pelosi more to the center to, you know, wrest control of the of the caucus, those Democrats will prove challenging in an, in a new Congress when they're in charge. Equally so, though, so will the blue dogs on, you know, on the right side of the caucus. Um, they will pick up members as well. So there will be this tussle back and forth, and the center of the party, uh, you know, may tick left, may tick slightly right. I think it depends on how the chips fall, but there will be, there will be even more power bases within the party itself. That's right. And I think what's important to remember, though, is that Democrats still don't have 60 in the Senate, and they don't have the White House. So it makes governing a bit easier. If Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate and had a Democratic president in the White House, they would be expected to pass some major pieces of legislation that would divide a caucus with various factions, whether you're the uber-progressives, progressives, New Dems, Blue Dogs, you know, whether you're in the CBC or the CHC, they each would have their interests. So the ability to unite the caucus is going to be challenging for sure, but it's done much easier if um, your party does not control the White House. So I think that's a really good transition. And, you know, talking about leadership, you know, assuming the Democrats just have the House next year, you know, there's been rumblings that there might be a new speaker who's not Nancy Pelosi. So, you know, I think there's something around 40 Democratic House candidates who have stated they won't support her. You know, I think that's you know, a big question, would they not support her on the first ballot? You know, I I don't think that's clear. But Nadim, you were the Democratic leader, um, chief of staff when Tim Ryan challenged her in 2016. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that and how you think, um, you know, she will react to some of these new um, members coming in who've who've made statements to that effect? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time, no one expected Donald Trump to win. I certainly did not as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. And Leader Pelosi at the time said, and she has said it since, look, if Hillary Clinton would be president, would have been president, I would have retired. Her only reason for sticking around is because of Donald Trump and to protect the Affordable Care Act. That was the argument that was made to member. Tim Ryan, who I know well, he decided to run for leader. And there was an element within the caucus that wanted a change. Democrats were promised to win many seats, and we didn't. I think we netted six six seats at the end of the day. That's a lot lower than the 15 to 20 that Democrats were talking about at the time. And Tim Ryan had the message that resonated with those members from you know, Pennsylvania, from Wisconsin, and from some of the states that Democrats had lost seats to that they should not have. The race was tough. And at the end of the day, it was 134 to 60, I believe, was the number, and Nancy Pelosi won. But it was tough for this reason, because it forced the leadership to come to the table and negotiate various other changes to the Democratic rules to expand the leadership table, to allow more younger members to come in and discuss um, their views and to have a say going forward. It opened up the rules 
you know, open up the committee process as well. So yeah, that in, in that sense, the race itself was tough, but what was really tough was negotiating with the various fac- factions within the caucus to come up with a way forward that would satisfy everyone that they are actually participating in the process. Look, tw- you know, should Democrats win? It would be the same process all over again. The rule there's right now there are various factions within the Democratic caucus are talking about changing the rules, you know, and that's important, but who is going to be able to sit down with them and negotiate all that? Remains to be seen. I would just add, uh, if if you look at the list of those 30 or 40 Democratic candidates who have said they are not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi, um, if if the Democratic Party is so lucky that those 40 candidates all get elected to Congress, uh, the Democratic Party is going to have the largest majority it's had in 40 years. Absolutely. Um, Pelosi has long said to all of the candidates out there, don't worry about me. You know, do what you need to do to win. If we have half that list elected to Congress, it would be a wonderful thing. But you have to look at where these candidates are running in the R plus 18 districts. Um, it, you know, it. I, I worked for two members kind of in that realm and, uh, you know, one who voted against Pelosi, one who voted for her. Uh, it's it's something that when you are a candidate, there, there's some leeway there. When you get to Congress and there and we have just won and there's this euphoria and you find out just exactly how Congress works and what your committee assignments are going to be, et cetera, people tend to come around. And I'm not saying that that will be the case with with everyone. I fully expect um, there to be as many defections uh, of that are available to be able to be defected. But I, I think that at the same time, you know, you have to look at the, who those candidates are and then who the candidates are that are leaving some space open whenever they're having those conversations. And I think that, that makes complete sense, Zach. And, and, you know, politics is about leverage. Some of these members who are leaving some space open, you know, what are they trying to position themselves for in the future within the caucus? You know, and, and, and whether it's a better committee assignment, whether it's a, it's a you know, um, an opportunity to, to get, you know, a bill that's really important to them, that they've been talking to their, you know, potential constituents about past early on, they understand that they have to voice their concerns and that their legitimate concerns as either a candidate who is running or already a member of Congress. However, should Democrats win, which, again, I believe they will, and everybody comes together, you know, what are the alternatives? What are these members going to do? Okay, Zach, um, who who are those that are challenging or and what are some of the things to watch out for in terms of what their legislative priorities might be and how those might be differing from kind of what leadership is currently focusing on? Like how does how does Medicare for all fit into this while still protecting the ACA? The, the, the simple answer as to her is currently no one is challenging her, uh, at least not for her position. Uh, Historically, the last several years, you've had pockets of Democrats who have challenged her indirectly, 
less so directly than Mr. Ryan did, but um, you'll have some of the younger members uh, making calls, circulating letters for new leadership. Uh, you'll have, you know, folks like Ryan running um, kind of as a protest vote. But to Nadim's point, there is currently a vacuum. Um, everyone likes to talk about how uh, it's time for new leadership and, uh, you know, there needs to be an alternative to Nancy Pelosi. But no one has seemingly identified who that is. And, you know, downtown and the media are pontificating about you know, who is potentially next in line to succeed her. Well, in order to succeed her, she would have to go somewhere. And, and there are no signs to suggest that she's going anywhere. Uh, and there is not a single sitting member of Congress who said, I'm in. And until that happens, we have been advising uh, you know our clients based off of our relationships with uh, with leadership and you know and our clients' relationships with leadership that they should assume that Nancy Pelosi will be speaker if the Democrats win until she says she's not running for speaker. Um, and that's all we have to work with. But at the same time, there are dozens of members looking to run for other leadership positions within the caucus. I think that. These discussions about House rules changing, caucus rules changing, will create more opportunities for uh, for some of the younger members who are kind of vying for leadership. But you are seeing contested races. In the vice chair position, you'll have P. Aguilar against Catherine Clark. On the chair position, you'll have Linda Sanchez versus Barbara Lee, maybe a third. The DCCC chair will probably be contested. Some names floating around are Susan Del Bene, Denny Heck, Sherry Bustos. When you get to the the top three, the whip, majority leader, and the speaker, those are the real uh, you know question marks. Does Clyburn make a move in one direction or another? Um, does Mr. Hoyer make a move in one direction or another? The only move that Nancy Pelosi can make is out, and I don't think that's the move that she's going to make. I think that they'll probably end up keeping the assistant leader position. These types of things relieve pressure in various areas, and Nancy Pelosi has done an incredible job at ensuring that people are happy. Um, I, that it's one of her trademarks. It's one of her parts of her effectiveness. Um, it's why she's been in power for for you know the entire 21st century. It's 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 a trademark of her, and she's very good at it. And um, when, when you're you know when you're in a setting with with Leader Pelosi, she can be quite charming, and she can be quite effective. She works very well with Mitch McConnell. Um, she she has worked very well with uh, Speaker Boehner in the past. I, it's just people uh, continuously underestimate her abilities, um, and so we should not count her short on this just because uh, there are some clamoring downtown. But do you think there are priorities that folks that potentially could be challenging, or maybe there are these rumblings that that are different than leadership, or do you think that this is something that folks coalesce behind? in the euphoria of, you know, the post-election type of atmosphere? I think that there are plenty of items out there that will will potentially serve as new litmus tests. I think you look at the Medicare for All is, is a good one. Impeachment is a good one. Uh, leadership's made very clear that that's not on the table. The important thing is the, this is the question that should be answered. Who is going to be able to tell the caucus, no, we're not going to do impeachment. No, we're not going to do abolish ICE. No, we're not going to do Medicare for All. 
because we have other priorities that we promised the American people that need to get done. And who's going to be able to unite the caucus to get these priorities done, whether it's jobs, whether it's on prescription drugs, whether it's on reforming Congress, as they often talk about, and every new you know, majority comes in and talks about that and delivers um, on some on, on that promise. You know, the various factions of the Democratic caucus have various priorities, right? You have the progressives, the uber-progressives, you have the new Dems, the blue dogs, and others. What you're looking for as a leader and what the caucus is looking for in a leader is someone who could listen to the various factions' priorities, but also at the same time unite the caucus. And that's what the Democrats are going to be grappling with post-elections. I think it's really interesting when, you know, with all the focus that there has been on, you know, what's going to happen with Pelosi, who's potentially going to be challenging her, kind of this lack of a leadership vacuum over on the Republican side. You know, we have Speaker Ryan, who is transitioning out of his role as Speaker. We don't exactly know who is going to be the next Speaker. You know, Kevin McCarthy seems to be, um, you know, Speaker Ryan's you know, designee and who he would like to be in that role, but we haven't had a vote yet. So I I think it's really interesting when you talk about trying to unite the caucus and kind of where Republicans are and in, in trying to figure out what their potential agenda for next Congress would be. It, it doesn't, it's not clear. And it's, um, I would say, probably just as interesting on the Republican side, who potentially is moving up in leadership, who are, who's going to fill a lot of these roles, because there are a lot of folks who are Moving um, and leaving Congress and retiring from pretty senior roles, um, both at the committee level, you know, because we do it a little bit differently on the Republican side. They're term limited out. And, um, you know, some other folks that are going to be moving or potentially leaving from leadership positions. And um, regardless of who's in the majority next Congress, the Republican side is is potentially going to look just as different in leadership as as the Democratic side, and how those two caucuses are going to work together. I, you know, I don't think we know yet until we know the numbers. And frankly, I don't think we may know the numbers. You know, we may not even know who's in the majority for a week or two after the election. Well, and on top of that, just the sheer number of freshmen, Democrats and Republicans. Because there will be a couple dozen freshman Republicans as well, regardless of the outcome of the election. So if you have somewhere between 60 and 100 new members of Congress, it will then become again, like it was several years ago, the, the youngest Congress the, in terms yeah. of, of uh, term served uh, in recent memory. And what effect that has on the committee makeup uh, is – can be very jarring as well, depending on just how the chips have fallen within members on certain committees. I, I'll throw the Financial Services Committee out there as an example. You could have a situation where you have upwards of 10 new Democrats and 10 or more new Republicans on the Financial Services Committee, which would be unprecedented and would throw these uh, members into you know a pretty significant committee of jurisdiction um, you know with with preconceived notions and past experiences but not the institutional understanding about how Congress works and that's going to be repeated time and time again across the uh, the committee spectrum um, and it's just going to be a new challenge for 
downtown especially uh, you know for 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 advocacy plans for you know educational campaigns and there's going to be a lot more uh, 101 required on on issues uh, for for clients across the board because we've not had this level of of novice members of Congress uh, enter in at this uh, you know at this point in some time. And I think what could be really interesting too, and um, you know, I think Nadim can probably talk to this a little bit, is you know if we have a freshman class of this size. You know, you really could see some disruptive actions by those members if they kind of come together and are like, screw it. We came to Washington to change things. And, you know, you guys have you, your folks who are in charge. But, you know, as a freshman class, we could actually affect a lot of change that we feel is important that leadership's not listening to. You're 100 percent correct. And what downtown has to look for is the deal makers. Who is willing to sit across the table from Republican and vice versa to say, you know what, let's find a way to reach agreement on this particular issue. And then they could go to the leadership and say, no, we have a block of 20 to 30 votes that would stop this particular bill or this issue unless you support us. Truthfully, all it would take, if the margin is, you know, even relatively thin next Congress, the Problem Solvers Caucus, the Blue Dogs, and the Tuesday Group, whatever that makeup is, if they come together on something, they are the, the kingmakers, right? Because you will never get the the farthest to the left and the farthest to the right parts of the caucus and the conference to agree on anything. They, they couldn't agree to team up on on that type of situation. Unless they want to stop something, unless they just want to stop everything. But, yeah, their opposition bends the arc back to themselves, right? But in terms of making a deal, uh, in terms of passing what should be substantive legislation, um, those folks in the middle, uh, and not all of them are even ideologically in the middle, Mm -hmm. they will be be, uh, very influential. I I met with a... uh with a potential mem- um, candidate who could be reelected, and he was wondering, should I join the New Dems, the Blue Dogs, who's going to have more power, who's going to have less power, who's going to be more effective with the leadership, how is this going to help my district? So these members are already thinking about what group they want to belong to and how that particular group, not necessarily just the freshmen, but the group that they're going to be associated with is actually going to be able to go to the leadership and say... No, we don't want to vote on this particular thing. We want to do it this way. And and for the past few years, Democrats really never really had to face this because they've been in the minority. So you know, I think talking about that, you know, as we kind of wrap up and and look towards next Congress, you know, a lot of this has been focused on Trump and kind of you know a referendum on Trump. Is is there any chance for next Congress to effectively work with the president on? legislation or is this going to be something where you know the majority of democrats are really looking to pass a lot of messaging legislation as a lead up to 2020 where they hope that there's going to be some sort of you know change in the white house whether it is a uh, trump actually leaving office, or um, you're going to have a new Democrat in there who will, who will be willing to work with Democrats? It's both. It's absolutely both. You know, messaging legislation helps um, alleviate some of the pressure within the caucus. 
So you want to put a message bill on the floor. You know that, right? You put a message bill on the floor. All Democrats vote for it. Republicans oppose. You know, everybody puts out their press release and everybody tweets on it, and then you move on. But the difference with Democrats, whether they'd be willing to work with Trump or not, President Trump or not, is Democrats like the government. And they want some victories for these members from tough districts that Zach had talked about. Whether, again, it's on jobs. Jobs are absolutely critical. But then the president has often talked about high uh, you know, prescription drugs, which is he willing to reach a, you know, across the aisle and, and, and talk with Nancy Pelosi and talk with you know, Chuck Schumer and say, hey, let's get something done on that? I think there's a, there's a strong potential that that would happen. But what is the pressure within the Democratic caucus? And will they say you know, to, to the leaders of the Democrats, no, don't ever talk to Trump? I don't think so. I think he could still do both. He could do strong oversight on the administration. You could pass messaging bills, and then you could actually work with the administration on certain issues. Right, and I think that I think that if Trump does plan to run for re-election, the real referendum on him will be not just the the midterm elections, not just what happens uh, if the Democrats take the House. If you look at the states and you look at the number of governorships that are up in the number of states he won in you know and how those overlap that's a huge thing for him so i mean obviously if he if he's planning on running for re-election you know i i just jotted a few these few down but florida georgia maine oklahoma alaska illinois michigan iowa minnesota wisconsin ohio kansas every single one of those has a sitting Republican governor except for one, and the Democrats are leading in every one of those polls or tied. That's a good place to be. I mean, the Democrats have a historically low number of governorships right now, and, you know, where they're weak on the Senate map makeup just because of how it played out, they're strong on the gubernatorial makeup, and those governors are going to play a major role in redistricting um, come 2020. Um, just as important as you know the, the state legislatures, just as important as, as as Congress. So, if he really wants to, if he's thinking of you know forward looking, I think that he's going to uh, going to want to take a win where he can take a win. I think that's right, and, re, and I'm glad you brought up redistricting because we've learned from from the Republicans way too many times, and the reason why Democrats are in the position they're in today is because of redistricting, and they began this process a couple of years ago of winning state legislatures, so spending, um, finding the right candidates to run for, for governorships, um, hoping that we have a better um, opportunity um, going forward in redistricting, because um, if, if, if you don't accomplish that, you know, then you're going to continue to have these um, elections where Democrats could win just by a few seats. Well, thank you so much. This is a fun discussion. Not as much for a Republican, but, you know, what can you do? Thanks again for tuning in to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast, and we'll be back soon. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.